Welcome to the Calvary Baltimore Weekly Sermon. Calvary meets in the Joppa Falston area between Baltimore and Bel Air, and our pastor is Josh Plantholt. Come join us on a Sunday. Our service info is at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. And now, here's this week's teaching. Revelation 14. Uh, let's, uh, let's pick up at verse 6 here. We have a lot to get to. <laughs> well, surprise, uh, you're going to find out we're actually teaching two words today. So uh, we are back to a slow pace. You are welcome. Uh, verse 6, Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel. Remember this word for angel in the Greek is angelos. That means messenger. So sometimes angels are angels and sometimes angels in scripture are messengers. John the Baptist is called an angelos. Uh, so again, this is, doesn't necessarily mean angel, which is going to be important, I believe, in the coming few verses for us. I saw another angel messenger flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and the springs of water. So the first messenger gives the evangelion. What we see there is, it's the good news. He gives the gospel. It's a, the good news to all peoples. And it's really fascinating when you're reading Revelation in, in, in its entirety because we go from the world is rebelling, the world is rebelling, the world is in chaos, the world is rebelling, God's offering the gospel. <laughs> and the point is that even th as mankind is just reaching its apex of evil, God is still desiring to see them saved, uh, which is beautiful. And then verse 8, another messenger, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now the second messenger declares Babylon is fallen, and it's not just fallen, it's fallen, fallen. Uh, the great city that defies God is introduced to us as a pile of rubble. Fascinating. Uh, verse 9. And another messenger, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beasts and its image, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of the wrath. Uh, the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Uh, the third message is much longer than the first and the second and it begins with an emphasis on evil and the punishment for evil. But now this third message is going to take a positive turn. So what we just read, verses 9 through 11, last week's message, describing those who keep the beast's commandments and their fiery punishment. And now the third message is going to take a positive turn in verses 12 and 13. Uh, and it's going to describe those who keep God's commandments and their heavenly reward. So uh, the third message began heavy last week and now it moves to the light, to the sweet, to the uplifting. Uh, verse 12. 
new territory. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Between verses 12 and 13, there is so much here. And the issue I ran into is that by the time I was done gathering my thoughts on our first two words in the Greek, seven in the English, our time was completely filled up and then some. So today's teaching will be part one of hopefully a two-part study. Uh, but I've learned, I've learned over the years, when God lays something on your heart, don't abandon it. Uh, because you have some pre-existing plan. So uh, let's read verse 12 again and then begin to unpack it, which may be a two-week study. Could be more. We'll see where it goes. Uh, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So we spent much of our time last week looking at the warning of hell but that hell's not a place for believers. So, so our question is, how do we know if we're believers? How do you know that you're saved? Well, verse 12, well, verse, verse 10 and 11 scares the dickens out of us. And verse 12 tells us who doesn't need to be scared. First, how do we know that we're saved? First, verse 12 says we endure. Secondly, we keep God's commandments. And third, we have faith in Jesus. How do you know that you're saved? You endure, you obey God's word, and you have faith in Jesus. Before we even begin to understand this list, it's vitally important to know that a saving faith has these three elements to it. And if even one of these three pillars of your faith is missing, the house will fall. The faith fails. It's shipwrecked. It's James 2, a dead faith. You cannot have a saving faith without Jesus, and I think you all understand that by now. But you, can't have a, but you cannot have a saving faith without obedience. And you cannot have a saving faith outside of enduring. So the markers of a saving faith is one that endures, it keeps God's commandment, and it has a faith in Jesus. Now, I just want to preface this a little bit, a little a footnote here. This doesn't mean that God's people are perfect. <laughs> okay? It's not that, if we're called to keep the commandments, it doesn't mean that we're never allowed to make a mistake. Okay, God's people are not demanded to be perfect. Jesus is perfect. We're not perfect. Jesus is perfect. This doesn't mean that you're never going to disobey. And if you do, I'm not saved. That doesn't. But the position of the heart is set to want to obey. And that doesn't mean you're never going to. How many times does Jesus have to say, don't fear? Because <laughs> there's, there's these moments where in our faith, it's like we are on top of the mountain and other times we're hanging on for dear life. It's not that we're going to have perfect faith, and it's not that we're going to have perfect endurance. You know, sometimes you're just red hot for the Lord, and then other times you're just barely surviving. Uh, but you're still enduring. There's still these trials. So again, it's not that, not that all three of these elements have to be perfect in your life, but they do have to be present. So, so back to our question. How do we know if we are saved? 
Don't you want to know that you're saved? Don't you want to know that you belong to God and not the evil one? Don't you want to know, especially in light of the first half of this message, that you're not going to hell? Because I sure want to know. Well, verse 12 gives us three markers and indicators of a true believer. And the first one is that they endure. It's going to be our entire lesson today. If you are truly saved, you will endure. And specifically from the context, you will endure until the end, until the day that you die. So what I, want to talk, what I want to do today is talk about endurance in two ways. And again, this is going to take up our entire morning. Uh, the first being the perseverance of the saints. The second being the preservation of the saints. Today will be all about enduring one of the three pillars of a true faith from Revelation 14. So first, perseverance. The word used in today's passage for endurance in the Greek is hupamane. And this word throughout the Bible means endurance, but it's deeper than that. It's patient endurance. It's, sometimes you can endure through suffering and you can complain the whole time. <laughs> You're enduring through it, but not well. Uh, Hupaname is enduring well through it, patiently endurance, a steadfast endurance, a persevering endurance. To help uh, this make a little bit more uh, a sense for us, Hupaname was a word that was used in antiquity to describe the quality of a good sword. <laughs> You see, a cheap sword in battle, uh, when it clashes with an enemy's shield, so you got your sword out, you're trying to kill them, and they block it with their shield, or maybe they block it with their sword. A cheap sword, when you hit something else that's hard, it dents. It chips. In some bad situations, it breaks in half. Uh, there's a show on the History Channel. Has anyone seen this called Forged in Fire? Is it? Yeah, okay. Well, there's, there's two of us in here. Uh, and it, three? Yes, I, Rick, I knew you had me. Uh, so we, it, it, it's, like, it's like chopped, but for blacksmiths. They're running out of ideas at this point. Um, and so they say, you have four hours to make a steel sword. And then, you know, all, there's always a guy with a ponytail in there. And he's like working on it. And they're doing this thing. And they have a set amount of time to make this weaponry. And then comes this little five foot five sword master. And he starts hacking things with the weapons they made. And occasionally, there's a sword that's poorly made. And they'll hit us, uh, they'll cut a lamb in half, they'll chop some bamboo, and it's always in slow motion, you know. Uh, but sometimes when it's a cheap sword, it dents and chips, and every once in a while the sword snaps in half. I saw one episode where the sharp end of the blade broke off and hit the guy in the neck that was swinging the sword. <laughs> a poorly made sword does not endure. But a quality sword, hupamane, it does endure. The word was used in the second century writings to describe a sword's power to sustain blows. And this is how God describes a true believer. This is to be your faith. A saving faith is a faith that can sustain blows. It can hold up against the strikes of the enemy. 
It, it, it can endure spiritual combat. It survives earthly tyranny. It survives sickness. It survives loss. The first marker of a saving faith in Revelation 14 is that it makes it through the fight of life. One of the most illuminating passages in the scripture to me on this topic is something John said in 1 John 2, verses 18 and 19. And remember, John wrote 1 John after he wrote Revelation. So in many ways, it's helpful, a very helpful way to apply the book of Revelation is to see how John applies it to, to the function of the church. And what John says in 1 John 2, 18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they have been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not, that they all are not of us. John is saying in the clearest way possible that there were people in his church who professed to be Christian. They probably tithed. They read their Bible. They went street witnessing. They got baptized. They partook of the Lord's Supper. But because they walked away from the church, John is saying clear as day, because they went out from us, they were not of us. They did not endure to the end. You can spend 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years faithfully attending church, but if you walk away from the Lord in the sunset of your life, if you walk away from Christ or the church or faith, it is proof, not that you lost your salvation, because I do not believe you can lose your salvation, but walking away from the faith is proof that you never had a saving faith. John can say what he says here in 1 John in the same way that the third messenger uh, says what he says in Revelation 14. Because God's people endure to the end. A true saint perseveres to the end. It hupaname. It survives blows. It bears repeating again. There, there is a reason in all seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. All seven of them have to the one who conquers. Because life is a battle, is it not? <laughs> it's such a battle, Paul tells us to put on a full set of armor before we get out of bed. <laughs> we, we, we. But the believer is called to endure through that battle, to make it to the end, to hoop on a may. Now, I want to be very clear here. A true believer, a heaven-bound child of God, follows God until they draw their last breath. So, let's put some legs on this, huh? Maybe you've been brought up in some charismatic circles. I, I remember watching one time uh, a documentary on the Kings of Leon. Has anyone ever heard of them? You're all in sin. Uh, no, so... There was a documentary on the Kings of Leon, and, and this, this, the lead singer, Caleb, he's got an incredible voice, and uh, he, they're a rock and roll band, they're just in all sorts of sin, but he grew up a preacher's son, and they were interviewing the mother because the son is truly troubled because he feels like he's abandoned God. Uh, and, and the mother said, you know, I remember little Caleb being slain in the spirit as a little boy, and so I know that he's saved. I have that hope. And so if, if you've been brought up in charismatic circles and you have a recollection of being slain in the spirit, 
Or maybe you've been brought up under fundamentalism. Anyone ever been brought up under fundamentalism? You probably have half the Bible memorized. If not, they beat you. <laughs> or maybe you've been brought up a Catholic and you've been baptized as a baby and you've marched for life. Or maybe you've been, uh, you've been brought up in old line denominations and you've done things for great social change. Or maybe you've had some religious experience and felt the presence of God. You ever have those moments? And this life-changing experience at some youth revival or some conference or, or something. But according to the Bible, if you do not endure to the end, you'd never had a saving faith. As R.C. once said, if you have it, you never lose it. And if you lose it, you never had it. If you are not self-deceived, if you, if we, are truly saved, we must continue to walk with the Lord. There is no framework in the entire Bible of being filled with the Holy Spirit and then living like a non-believer. You won't find it in Scripture. You will not find any framework of the Bible for not attending church. In fact, John said that those who left the church completely, he called them the Antichrist. It is so against the heart of Christ to leave the church. doesn't mean you have to go to this church and go to any church, but a Christian is a church. There's no framework in the Bible for not striving for holiness. Jesus said in Luke 9.62, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Wow. So for the last time, a genuine faith, a saint, perseveres to the end. And because this is true, let's think about this. Anything that seeks to keep you from church... Anything that seeks to destroy your faith in God's word, that seeks to minimize obedience to Christ, these things are therefore not just evil, but are threats to your eternal soul. And not to be played with. What did Jesus tell us when it came to sexual sin? Run. Run out of the room. So you're watching shows with stuff that shouldn't be on it. What are you doing? <laughs> to turn it off. Run away if you have to run, but do whatever. Like we said last week, if your arm causes you to sin, chop it off. Do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes. And this is how Paul lined down his letter in Ephesians 6. Uh, if you remember, he runs through the armor of God. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And he goes on to say, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of the unseen world. And then he goes to the helmet and the belt and the chest plate and the, and the sword. And then he concludes by saying, uh, and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Ready? That's how Paul starts to conclude the, the Ephesians. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. It's not sufficient that you put on your armor at one time. It's that you wear your armor at all times. God's people persevere to the end. Now, the second half of our study, the preservation of the saints. And this is the one I'm excited about. <laughs> 
Christian endurance has two components to it. Man's side and God's side. You didn't think you were the one keeping this all together now, did you? (laughs) A Christian endures because a man perseveres. And a Christian endures because God preserves. Preservation of the saints is on God's end and perseverance of the saints is on ours. Now we've already examined our role. We need to persevere. We need to contend for the faith. We need to fight on. We need to strive. We need to put on armor, press on. Yes, 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 yes. But now we look at enduring through the divine. So I was talking with a pastor friend of mine uh, this week. And if you've ever had a good friend, you can pick on each other and it makes you feel more loved. Uh, and so he was making fun of me for how long it took, uh, took me to go through the book of Jude with you all. Uh, and he was like, I can't believe you spent 23 sermons on Jude. What is wrong with you? I'm like, I don't know. I got excited. And so we, you know, we were laughing about it. Uh, but thinking of Jude, the first verse says you're never going to escape this book. Uh, Jude 1, it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Just as clear as the scriptures are on us persevering, the scriptures are also clear that God is the one who preserves us and keeps us. Some consider John 17, I think that's your favorite chapter in the Bible, isn't it, John Lewis? Um, It's because the book's named after him. Uh, No, uh, but uh, some consider John 17 to be the holy of holies in the gospel, the, the, the most precious part in You know, how do you say one part's better than the other? But it's certainly special. And in John 17, it's called Jesus' high priestly prayer. And this is what he says. It's Jesus praying right before he goes to the cross. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. And he's praying to his father. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Did you see that? God drew them, but then they had to endure. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Verse 8. For I have given them your words and you gave me that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. Do you see this? God keeps his people. He preserves his people to remain his people. I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Oh, praise God. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So God not only keeps our faith in him, but he also helps us to hoop on 
to endure the blows of the evil one. Do you see the two sides here? As we press on, God keeps us pressing on. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with hupaname, endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the starter, the author, and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, who Bonimo endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's the point, yes. We need to endure, we need to fight hard, Some days being a Christian is rather easy, and some days it's rather hard. But we are called to fight regardless. And we need to run our races as hard as we can until we draw our last breath. But at the same time, as we are resisting the schemes of the devil, as we are Pressing on as we are running the race, God is also keeping us, preserving us, and gifting us our endurance. <laughs> Praise God. And as we just read in Hebrews 12, too, Jesus is both the author and the perfecter of our faith. The word perfecter means completer. Did you know he's completing your faith? Meaning Jesus isn't just the one who started your faith. He's also the one who's going to get you to the finish line. He's both the guy that starts the starter pistol and waves the flag at the end. <laughs> now I'm going to be blunt with you. It's not unlike me to be brutally honest now, is it? <laughs> uh, I have one job to do and that's to tell you the truth. I'm going to do it. Many professing believers hate that this is true. People, hear me, people hate the idea that God gives us faith. They hate the fact that God preserves our faith. And do you know why? Because it leaves no space for the autonomous will of man. People want to believe the last thing any of us are going to give to God is our autonomy. People want to believe that they are in complete control of their own destinies, that they are in control of their own will, that people are their own sovereign. And don't get me wrong, I believe in free will. The Bible's pretty clear we have free will. But at the same time, God in Exodus 4.21, he hardens hearts. In 1 Samuel 10, he softens hearts. In Psalm 51.10, he purifies hearts. In Acts 16.14, we read of Lydia that says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Saul. And after she was baptized, the Lord opened her heart to receive the gospel. Again, I believe in free will, but we also can't miss the biblical truth that God changes wills. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Again, so many people hate that this is true, but in reality, it is the most glorious thing imaginable. Loved ones, 
Ugh. If God did not open your heart to receive his son, if God did not open your heart to receive the message, the evangelion of Jesus Christ, you never would have accepted him. Amen. The Bible is so clear on this. No one searches after God. No, not one. It says it twice. It's so true, it's doubly true. And it's in the New and the Old Testament. So it's quadruply true. <laughs> he is the author and the perfecter. And without his authorship, there would be no faith. And don't get me wrong. You may have spirituality apart from God. There's plenty of devout Muslims. There's plenty of devout Mormons. There's plenty of devout Buddhists. Apart from God, you can have some form of spirituality, but it would not be in the God of the Bible. To receive God in the way that he describes himself is described in the scriptures as a supernatural event. Which is why there are so many people who read the Bible, and don't you hear what some pastors say or people say? And it's like, how did you get that? <laughs> how do you believe that that's the way Jesus is. And the reason is, it's idolatry. They created a God in their own image. In order to receive Jesus the way that God, the Bible describes him, is a supernatural faith. And because God is the author of our faith, and he is also the perfecter of our faith, this means that he preserves our faith. You have to understand... I can talk about persevering to the end and you can receive that and, and, and be excited about it and be built up to keep pushing on and praise God. But make no mistake, there is no eternal security if man is fully autonomous. Think about it. Let's, let's, let's put on our Christian hats for a second. huh? If you are a believer, you know, you have to know that if the Spirit of God left you for a day, <laughs> if the Spirit of God left you to your own devices and God didn't mercifully keep you from your own foolishness, then 100 out of 100 times you are going to do what pleases the flesh. True? Understand that if the Spirit of God does not keep you, you will not endure. We are desperately dependent upon God. I love that song. Donnie chooses to sing it all the time. And Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. I love it because it's true. <laughs> God, if you left me for one hour, I'm doomed. And again, yes, we need to cling to Jesus, but chiefly, it is not a matter of you holding on to God, but a matter of God holding on to you. And if you can receive this, this isn't bad news. This is the most glorious news imaginable. <laughs> this is such good news, because if God is the one who is holding you, regardless of you, in spite of you, your salvation, your faith will not fail because it's his. He is the author and the perfecter. Preservation, the preservation of the church comes from him. You know why you came to church today? It's not because you're awesome. <laughs> it's because God drew you. Because his mercies are new each 
day. It's not that your faith grows in and of yourself and autonomously every day. It's that God's spirit is living and active in your life. Praise God. And so he drew you. You know, I know people do not like the reality that God is sovereign over all of creation, and that includes man's mind, but I am convinced the reason men want full autonomy, the reason we don't want to give this last little bit to God and reject his full sovereignty is because we are dreadfully unaware of who we really are without him. We think too highly of ourselves if we think we don't need God to keep us. We don't know what we are apart from him. We are dirty, rotten sinners. Your marriage wouldn't survive the week without him. Your kids wouldn't turn your name into a curse word in one week without him. He is the one who keeps us all together. It is his restraining hand that holds us. Not just sometimes, at all times. Even when we're in sin, he's still withholding an ocean full of sin. You murdered two people, it could have been 50. It is his restraining hand at all times that anything good or positive comes out of your life. So please hear me. If you love Jesus, it's not because you're some spiritual giant in and of yourself. No, it's because God in his infinite mercy has called and preserved you. The preservation of the saints, the preservation of your faith is a gift. Like every other good thing that you have. I want to read to you something. John 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. See how easy it is to come to Jesus? Look. <laughs> And I will, if we look, he will raise him up on the last day. But how could Jesus say confidently that he will lose none of his sheep? Have you ever thought about that? I think it was Laura. I think we were talking about that the good shepherds are favorite, one of our favorite ways that God describes himself. How, how can God, the good shepherd, Jesus, the good shepherd, confidently say, I'm not going to lose any sheep this journey? Because he's a good shepherd. A good shepherd who does not get his sheep home is not a good shepherd. A good shepherd who lets his sheep wander off on the horizon thinking, well, I guess they made up their mind, is <laughs> not a good shepherd. And a shepherd who is not committed to getting his sheep home is not a good shepherd. But Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd, and he is keeping us. He's preserving us. He keeps watch over his flock, and he will get us home. He's confident in that. He sent us his Holy Spirit to guide us and to transform our thinking from bad to good. If God didn't have full autonomy over your mind, have you ever, <laughs> do you remember when God first entered into your life how poorly your thought life was? How sinful your thought life was? Praise God he overrides our wills. <laughs> Praise God he transforms our mind from bad to good. This is an immense pleasure and grace from him. And he changes our hearts, the desires of our hearts, from profane to holy. 
To produce what? The fruit of humanity? No, the fruit of the Spirit. And Jesus is our advocate before the Father. And the Father is the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning, from whom all good gifts come from. Every day, every day that we are in Christ is a new day that God is lavishing us in blessings and provisions. And not because you are holding it all together, because He is. And when God looks over the lives of the people in church, not for one second is He thinking, I hope that sheep knows karate because the wolves are coming. God doesn't see Satan getting one of his flaming arrows aimed at your forehead and go, hope he dodges it. Not for one second is he thinking, I hope they can find their way home by themselves. He's the good shepherd. He's the protector, the preserver of our faith. Jesus is with his people. If you get one thing, he is with you every step of the way. He is with us in the green pastures and still waters. And he's with us in the valleys of deeper darkness. And we need not fear for his rod and his staff will comfort us. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus preserving and keeping his people both always and forever. And this is one of the key pillars of the Protestant Reformation. Soli Dio Gloria. To, to God alone be glory. You do not deserve glory that your faith is intact. God does. It's not that you're better at fighting the schemes of the enemy. It's that God has fought the battle for you. The victory belongs to the Lord. And he is the one who deserves the glory for all good things. And that includes, loved ones, our faith. So let me say two quick, very Quick closing remarks here. First, God may be keeping our faith and preserving us, but the proof that we belong to God, that he is keeping us, is that we respond to his preservation by persevering. Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruit. And in a similar way, you will know you are being preserved by your persevering. As we press on, as we fight, as we contend for the faith, as we persevere, it will serve as evidence that God is preserving us. Amen? Secondly, because God is keeping us and preserving us, and it's not so much about our efforts as it is about His, you have to understand, believing this does not weaken your faith. It actually enriches it. Because when we believe God is both the author and the perfecter of our faith, as the Bible so clearly says, then we don't need to be so fixated about our performance, now do we? I was talking to a pastor friend of mine about a month ago, and he, he doesn't believe this. And every Sunday, he has to put together a manuscript and a teaching to try to capture his audience. And he found out that I believed this and it was like he saw me fly into the room with a unicorn horn. He couldn't believe that I thought this. And he thought I was heartless because I thought this. And I said, let me, let me tell you what this has done to me. Because I know that God is in control, I am on my knees every day asking God to do it. It's not about what we bring to the table. 
It's about what God can do through us. It's not about my works. <laughs> it's about his through me. And the measure of faith that he gives me. It makes us absolutely dependent upon him and his ability. And you know what? It makes him the hero of our faith. Not us and our ability to maintain our faith. This will enrich your prayer life. This will enrich your witnessing. This will enrich your praise. Because it becomes more about him and less about us. It's soli dio gloria gives God the glory in all spiritual matters. This belief in an all-sovereign God does not create a lackadaisical, flippant, cavalier, dead faith. On the contrary, it will enrich it a thousandfold. So, loved ones, I'd like to close with a scripture here from Hebrews 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Do you see it? We have to persevere. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If we stop relying on ourselves... And draw near to the one who is on the throne. He will supply us with mercy and grace to press on. And endure hupaname to the end. Amen? Let's pray and then we'll take communion. If you need communion, um, Darlene's over there. She can, she can help you out. God, we um, raise your hand if you need communion. Uh, we, she can help you. God, we, we love you. We, we praise you. We thank you. We ask that you be with us now. We ask that you would capture your people now. We ask that you would help us to hubaname, to sustain the blows of the evil one. Keep us, God, and help us to endure and drive us to our knees, not only in dependency, but in joy. That you are a good and loving God. God, we pray that if anyone here does not know you, that they may decide from this moment forth to live for you. From this day forth and forevermore. If anyone needs prayer, we're going to have a prayer team off by the side after communion. We pray that they may go and receive prayer and plug into the body here. Be with us now. And in Jesus' name, amen. Before we take communion, I, I say this every time because it's important. If you are not a believer, this is not for you. And I ask that you would abstain. Uh, and maybe you're not a believer, but you want to be. And what I would say is this symbolizes a meal with the Lord. And to sit at the table with Jesus is to be his friend. It is to have him as your savior. And if you remember, Jesus' table was filled with sinners. <laughs> and so if you want to be one with the Lord, if you want peace with him and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, and be accepted into heaven, for eternity, then please join us for this meal. But I will warn you, once you partake, do never, never, never turn back. Press on. Do not put your hand to the plow and turn away. Thanks for joining us for today's message from Calvary Baltimore. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email with your questions, prayer requests, or just to say hi. 
Our email address is calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. If you'd like to donate to support the work God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. And if you're in the area, stop by on a Sunday morning. For directions and service times, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. If you can't be here in person, we also live stream on our website and on our Facebook page. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Until next time, as Pastor Josh says, study the Word to live the Word to share the word and join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore Weekly Sermon.